Union Seminary, and Charles Augustus Briggs. The Union Seminary case study centers around the personality of Charles Augustus Briggs, an Old Testament scholar who was noted for his battle with B.B. Warfield. Warfield was a professor at Princeton Seminary and was a solid defender of biblical inerrancy. Briggs was to become a professor at Union Seminary in 1874, but before this, as a result of his studies in Germany, he was already moving away from biblical orthodoxy. In 1889, two years before the delivery of his installation address in connection with a new chair that had been created and endowed for him at the institution, he published a volume entitled, Wither, A Theological Question for the Times. In it he went hammer and tongs against biblical inerrancy. In his opening chapter he stated that the religion in Great Britain and America is at present time in a very unsatisfactory condition. He went on to castigate the churches for their failure to evangelize the masses in the great cities. Then he made an observation about the work of certain evangelists, such as Moody. Of him and his ministry he said, Another strong effort has been put forth by Mr. Moody and other so-called evangelists who have pursued his methods. Great combinations are made with great effort and great noise for a little while here and there, and much good was accomplished. But with the cessation of the special efforts, everything goes back to the former state of nothings. There is nothing permanent about these evangelistic labors. Moreover, Mr. Moody and his followers are crude in their theology. They pursue false methods in their interpretation of scripture, and therefore they spread abroad not a few serious errors. And, on the whole, work is disorganized and confused. They do not edify the Church of Christ, they do not organize and train the awakened and converted. The churches ought to do all this work of evangelization and vastly more that is left undone. This statement by Briggs shows where he stood and what his attitude was toward men like Moody who had been singularly blessed by God and whose labors we now know produced results for good almost beyond imagination. Briggs' labors were to produce results for evil that exceeded his wildest expectations. Briggs versus Patton, Hodge, and Warfield Briggs went to work on Hodge, Warfield, and Patton over inerrancy. It is claimed, he said, by President Patton of Princeton, that inerrancy of scripture is essential to the inspiration of the scriptures, and doctors Hodge and Warfield go so far as to say that Approved error in scripture contradicts not only our doctrine, but the scripture's claims, and therefore its inspiration in making those claims. Briggs claimed that the doctrine of inerrancy was a new theory, despite the fact that there is extensive documentation to the contrary. He argued that the doctrine of inerrancy of scripture not only comes into conflict with the historical faith of the church, but is also in conflict with biblical criticism. He was wrong in his first assertion, but right in the second. There is no doubt that inerrancy is in conflict with biblical criticism. The learned professor went on to say that if anyone can find any comfort in verbal inspiration and the inerrancy of the scriptures, we have no desire to disturb him, provided he holds these errors as private opinions and does not seek to impose them upon others. 
But fidelity to the truth requires that we should state that they are not only extra-confessional, but that they are contrary to truth in fact, and that they are broken reeds that will surely fail anyone who leans upon them, and that they are therefore positively dangerous to the faith of ministry and people. Briggs and Higher Criticism Toward the end of his book, Dr. Briggs says, There can be no doubt that recent criticisms have considerably weakened the evidences for miracles and predictive prophecy. To many minds it would be easier to believe in the inspiration of the scriptures and the divinity of Jesus Christ if there were no such things as miracles and prediction in the sacred scriptures. An alerted doctor came to the end of his book with a statement that any evangelical could agree with. He said, The more conflict the better. Battle for the truth is infinitely better than stagnation in error. Every error should be slain as soon as possible. If it be our error, we should be the most anxious to get rid of it. Error is our greatest foe. Truth is the most precious possession. I'm sure every evangelical would agree that the foremost error of this generation is the one that discards biblical inerrancy and it should be slain as soon as possible. Briggs took his doctorate at the University of Berlin, working under A. I. Dorner, the professor of higher criticism. Carl E. Hatch, in his book, The Charles A. Briggs Heresy Trial, to which I will be making extensive references, says it was the University of Berlin that turned the New Yorker into a fiery apostle of German theology. His conversion to modern theology was complete before returning to America, he caustically remarked that the Americans were far behind the times. He added he now knew that his mission in life was to return to America and modernize theological studies in his own country. This he would attempt to do by disseminating German critical methods through American seminaries. Briggs joined the Union Seminary faculty in 1874. By 1890 he was inwardly burning with discontent he had not yet found the proper means to advertise the modern German approach to the Testament. Other conditions at Union increased his ill humor. In 1870, Union entered into an agreement with the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. The official Presbyterian position was staunchly opposed to German theology. Hatch notes that the majority of the faculty members at Union were overt or covert adherents to the Walhelsen documentary hypothesis. But Briggs had to tread cautiously, for the Presbyterian Church could cancel his appointment to the faculty. His writings were studded with guarded qualifications. He was successful in getting the Executive Board of Union to institute a new Department of Higher Criticism with himself at its head. But it was entitled Department of Biblical Theology to avoid the criticism that would be sure to rise from the use of the words higher criticism. Charles Butler, a longtime friend of Briggs and a director of the seminary, endowed the new chair with a gift of $100,000, earmarked solely for the Department of Biblical Theology. Briggs drops his bomb. On January 20, 1891, Charles Briggs dropped his bomb on the Union. Adams Chapel was filled to capacity as Briggs delivered his inaugural address. But before delivering the address, he was requested to submit to the pledge required of newly appointed or transferred teachers at all Presbyterian seminaries. 
This involved making a public declaration of belief in the Holy Scriptures as the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Little did the unsuspecting assembly realize that in less than five minutes all that had been professed would be repudiated. Briggs stated that four barriers kept people from the Bible. The first one was superstition. The Bible, he said, has no magical value in it, and there is no halo enclosing it. It will not keep off evil spirits any better than a cross. It will not guard a home from fire half as well as holy water. The Bible as a book is paper, print, and binding, nothing more. The students broke out with loud applause. The second barrier keeping men from the Bible is the dogma of verbal inspiration. There is nothing divine in the text, in its letters, words, or clauses. The students again gave him a great ovation. Then he went on to his third point. The third barrier to the Bible is the false notion that the scripture is inerrant. Conceding that finding errors in the Bible was disconcerting, Briggs nevertheless insisted that the higher criticism finds them, and we must meet the issue whether it destroys the authority of the Bible or not. I shall venture to affirm that there are errors in the scriptures that no one has been able to explain away, and even the idea in theory that they are not in the original text is sheer assumption. If such errors destroy the authority of the Bible, it is already destroyed for historians. Men cannot shut their eyes to truth and fact. The Bible itself nowhere makes the claim that it is inerrant, nor do the creeds of the church sanction such a theory. Indeed, the theory that the Bible is inerrant is the ghost of modern evangelicalism to frighten children. End of quote. Briggs went on to his fourth point in which he struck out against the belief that the authenticity of the Bible was founded upon the belief that holy men of old had written the various books of holy writ. Briggs said this, But what do we know of the authors apart from the Bible itself? Apart from the sacred writings, Moses and David were not more inspired than Confucius and Sakamuni. They were leaders of men, but how do we know that they were called of God to speak divine words to us? The only way in which we can prove their authority is from their writings, and yet we are asked to accept the authority of these writings on the authority of these authors. When such fallacies are thrust in the face of men seeking divine authority in the Bible, is it strange that so many turn away in disgust? It is just here that the higher criticism has proved such a terror in our times. Traditionalists are crying out that it is destroying the Bible because it is exposing their fallacies and follies. It may be regarded as a certain result of the science of higher criticism that Moses did not write the Pentateuch or Job. Ezra did not write Chronicles, Ezra or Nehemiah. Jeremiah did not write the Kings or Lamentations. David did not write the Psalter, but only a few of the Psalms. Solomon did not write the Song of Songs or Ecclesiastes and only a portion of the Proverbs. Isaiah did not write half of the book that bears his name. The great mass of the Old Testament was written by authors whose names or connection with their writings are lost in oblivion. End of quote. From this point on, the inaugural address was a manifesto urging all liberals to join in the higher criticism war against the conservatives. Casting himself in the role of a would-be conqueror, Briggs finished his lecture with a spirited exhortation. He said, We have undermined the breastworks of traditionalism. 
let us blow them to atoms. We have forged our way through obstructions. Let us remove them now from the face of the earth. Criticism is at work everywhere with knife and fire. Let us cut down everything that is dead and harmful, every kind of dead orthodoxy, every species of ecclesiasticism, all mere formal morality, all those dry and brittle fences that constitute denominationalism and are barriers to church unity. Let us burn up every form of false doctrine, false religion, and false practice. Let us remove every encumbrance out of the way for a new life. The life of God is moving throughout Christendom, and the springtime of a new age is about to come upon us. End of quote. Charles Augustus Briggs had crossed his Rubicon. The traditionalists would not pass up the challenge. Surely one aspect of Briggs' character manifested itself in this challenge delivered at the end of his inaugural address. In 1889, just two years prior to this, in Wither, he had said he had no objection to those who believed in inerrancy so long as they held them as private opinions and did not seek to impose them on others. Now he comes along with his opinion, labels them truth, and begins a campaign to impose them on everyone. Why should his opinions not also be privately held and not imposed on others either? His inaugural address and the positive response he got from the students indicated that he and others like him had been successful in imposing their views on the students. It also is notable that Briggs stated he was glad the war had begun. This is no speech of a pacifistic personality. The war phrase did not come from orthodox believers. It came from this brash personality who was determined to change the direction of the seminary and the denomination to which he was attached. The reaction to Briggs' bomb. One of the leading lights of the Union faculty took issue with Briggs. William G.T. Shedd was professor of systematic theology and an evangelical. He cited reasons of conscience that made it necessary for him to disarm this infidel in traditionalist armor. He alleged that higher criticism was conjectural, a wholly modern theory, and in severing the traditional writers from the books of the Bible, Briggs had made inspiration of no effect. It had become an inspiration of error. Hatch, whose work shows considerable bias in favor of the liberals, concludes that Shedd showed that the plainer the inconsistencies of the traditionalists were shown to be, the more reckless their arguments would become. In short, the old guard theologians in time would resort to polemics rather than reason. This drift was eventually to drive many middle-of-the-roaders into the liberal camp. Briggs had stirred up a hornet's nest. It brought about two efforts to get rid of him. One effort centered around Union Seminary. His opponents wanted the board of the institution to remove him from the faculty. The other centered around the Presbyterian Church. Earlier, Union Seminary had entered into an agreement with that denomination by which the appointment of faculty members required the approval of the Church. What was not clear, and this entered into the Briggs case, was whether the denomination also had to approve a professorial change of status. It might have applied to Briggs because he had just been appointed to head up the new Department of Biblical Theology, and conceivably this could be regarded as similar to a new appointment. On the other hand, he had been a member of the faculty since 1874. 
Had he been coming up for approval as a newcomer, the issue would have been clear. Thus his status was beclouded by the fact that it was an appointment to a new chair of a man who had been on the faculty for some years in a different capacity. The Presbyterian Church, however, was finally to rule on the Briggs case as though the change of status required its approval. Philip Schaff, professor of church history at Union, was a close friend of Briggs. He was also a theological liberal. In his appraisal of the response to Briggs' inaugural, he said that it was the defiant and exasperating tone in which Briggs delivered the address that made it sound like a manifesto of war. That probably was true. There is scant reason to believe that proceedings would have commenced against Briggs if he had conducted himself as he had during the previous 17 years. His higher critical views were being propagated during this period of his life and nothing had come up by way of a challenge to unseat him. Union Seminary was already deeply infiltrated by liberalism and it probably would have gone along that way had Briggs been more discreet. But Briggs was the catalyst who forced the issue and brought the trend in the seminary to light of day. The directorate of Union Seminary was forced to take some kind of action with regards to Briggs. The board asked Briggs eight categorical questions to which Briggs gave his response. The questions were so phrased that Briggs did not need to comment on his basic convictions. It created the impression that the heretical teacher was not heretical after all. Union Seminary then published an amplified version of Briggs' beliefs on the Bible. This was done to hamper the effort not to approve Briggs' appointment by the Presbyterian Church. While this was in progress, Briggs further damaged his own case by making comments to the press about his views on the book of Daniel. He said that the book had not been written by Daniel, as the book itself claimed. It had been penned by some unknown redactor who lived long after Daniel's time. Briggs went further than that. In an interview with a newspaper reporter, he lost his cool and stated categorically, the Bible is not inerrant. And he extolled the German-trained higher critics in Europe for their imaginative and progressive discoveries in the field of biblical scholarship. Briggs and the Presbyterian Church The Briggs case went to the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. During the course of the proceedings, many speeches were made and many of the liberals in the denomination spoke in defense of Briggs. The liberals alleged that men like Hodge and Warfield had themselves used higher criticism in connection with their own work and writings. And they argued that if Briggs were guilty, so were they. Leading lights in the denomination such as Arthur McGifford of Lane Seminary in Cincinnati said that Briggs was one of the most helpful and inspiring teachers in our church. Dr. Herrick Johnson of McCormick Seminary in Chicago demonstrated unusual courage when he contended there was no question that Briggs was evangelical. It was all in vain, however. The opponents of Briggs were successful in getting the church to refuse his appointment at the seminary, but this did not mean the seminary would agree to the decision of the General Assembly. After the Detroit verdict, which went against Briggs, Dr. Schaff, Union's church historian, said that he felt that Union would stand behind Briggs and defend him to the end. Francis Brown, another faculty member, said, Now we will become more militant in our efforts to promote higher criticism and stand by Briggs. 
he spoke prophetically, for Union indeed stood behind Briggs. The Board of Directors of Union voted to defy the General Assembly's veto of Briggs' professorship at Union, an action that struck many of the Orthodox as a defense not only of the heretic's academic position, but also of his teachings. Two directors voted against Briggs at Union, but they were a small minority. Union's defiance was taken to mean that the seminary was determined to propagate the German theology. The reaction of New York newspapers to the Briggs trial and the sequel makes for interesting reading. The New York world saw Union's decision to defy the General Assembly as a triumph for both Briggs and higher criticism. To the world, it seemed that this crisis of conflicting wills had turned the New York seminary almost overnight into the chief citadel of the new theology in the United States. The New York Times agreed and added some thoughts of its own. Taking note of how the intellectual world was in the midst of a revolution that was overturning absolute standards, the Times urged Union, which it deemed the leading liberal seminary in America, to apply the pragmatic principles of this revolution to fields other than higher criticism. It recommended that Union expand its national emphasis to comprehend such subjects as sociology. In short, Union should not stop at establishing a department of higher criticism, but go on to found a department of applied Christian sociology. New York City, concluded the Times, would make an ideal laboratory for such a venture because of its teeming slums. The New York Presbytery tries and acquits Briggs. The Briggs battle was not yet over, however. A new phase began when the New York Presbytery tried him for heresy. On April 13, 1891, the Presbytery appointed a committee to consider this inaugural address Briggs had given at Union a few months before. By the first week of May, 1891, the committee brought in its report. Briggs curtly refused to appear before the committee, although he was invited to do so. Hatch indicates that a chief reason for Briggs' unwillingness to appear before the committee stemmed from another consideration. He was in the midst of completing a pamphlet designed to neutralize the research of Birch, chairman of the committee, and his associates. In this publication, he aimed at making his position on orthodoxy so clear that the prosecution's case would appear ridiculous. Here, as in previous moves, his intention was not to prove his orthodoxy, but rather to prolong the theological debate. Each added day, he reasoned, meant that much more publicity for the liberal point of view. Influenza caught up with Briggs, and he was unable to carry through on his plan, but he did give an interview to the press and again made some unguarded statements. Waxing eloquent, he made a number of impolitic statements which played into the hands of the reactionaries. I do not know of one European teacher of the Old Testament, he exclaimed, who believes in the inerrancy of the Bible, and the scholars of this country are with us as well. He was even less discreet when he followed these remarks with a call to arms. Showing that even illness could not dull his single passion, he said, We have not urged this fight, although we have been ready for it for some time. It was not considered advisable to force the fighting, but now that it is here against our will, we shall take up our arms and fight with all our energy and power. This interview convinced the committee of a need for a trial by the Presbytery.
The committee found Briggs' inaugural address to be theologically unsound on a number of crucial points. They noted that whereas the confession clearly proclaimed that the Old Testament in the Hebrew and the New Testament in the Greek were immediately inspired by God, Briggs flatly denied this assumption. One man dissented from the committee's report to the Presbytery. The majority report, once accepted, resulted in the appointment of a committee to draw up charges against Briggs. Interestingly, immediately after Briggs' inaugural address, liberal ministers and professors organized a secret fraternity called Chi Alpha. The sole purpose of this intellectual club was to convert young Orthodox ministers newly arrived in the area to liberal theology. The Chi Alpha Fraternity, in short, seemed an organization to entice fledgling ministers from their orthodox moorings. Its notable success was observed by the New York Sun, which said that an ever-increasing number of young orthodox ministers are becoming infected with higher criticism. On November 4, 1891, Briggs was called to present himself and to offer his defense against the charge of heresy. The church where the Presbytery met to consider the case was packed. In making his defense, Briggs expressed deep regret and sorrow if he had in any way over the past few months disturbed the peace of the church or given pain and anxiety to his brethren in the ministry. This was effective, even though palpably false. Briggs' new approach won over some of the moderates. His brilliant defense wooed the rest. Although his remarks were enshrouded in ecclesiastical legalisms, he brilliantly laced his speech at strategic intervals with subtle pleas for higher criticism. This technique baffled and angered the prosecution committee, for they were expecting a militant and forthright justification of Wellhausen's ideas. Briggs' clever ability to becloud the major issue was especially astute when he insisted that the two leading charges against him did not comply with the procedural rules of the church's book of discipline. Briggs handled the charges against him cleverly, but what he said in the final 20 minutes of his discourse was tantamount to an admission of heresy. Dr. Shedd made the assertion, Briggs' address could no more be squared with the Westminster Confession than you could square a circle. But when the vote came, a vote that was based plainly on the question of German higher criticism, the New York Presbytery exonerated Briggs by a 94-39 to 39 majority. The decision of the New York Presbytery was appealed to the General Assembly in 1892. It remanded the case to the New York Presbytery for a retrial. The New York Liberals again returned a verdict to acquit. The case was appealed to the General Assembly again. In its meeting in 1893 in Washington, D.C., the General Assembly excommunicated Briggs from the church. There was no appeal from this decision. Six years later, Briggs was ordained a priest in the Protestant Episcopal Church. As a result of the General Assembly's action, Union Seminary was faced with its own decision, but it did not wait until the 1983 General Assembly meeting. It already knew which way the wind was blowing, in 1892, Union Seminary separated from the Presbyterian Church, retaining Briggs on its faculty. He labored there until his death in 1913, a persistent and unyielding advocate of biblical errancy. 
The conclusions drawn by Hatch as a result of his doctoral study on the Briggs case are very important. He states that higher criticism made its initial impact upon intellectuals, particularly in the East, and the new German theology was long confined to the rarefied cloisters of theological seminaries. Higher criticism that started in the East moved westward, capturing all but a few bastions of fundamentalist resistance, some of which still defiantly fly their banners. The Lessons Union Seminary and Briggs Teach What lessons can be learned from the case of Briggs in Union Seminary? The first and most obvious is that the institution went on from the days of Briggs to become and remain one of the most liberal seminaries in the United States. At no time since Briggs' day has the institution reversed its position. Instead, it has moved further and further away from historic orthodoxy. Briggs, compared to Union Seminary today, would be considered relatively orthodox. This shows that once an institution moves away from biblical infallibility, it continues its course until its aberrations include denials of biblical essentials beyond inerrancy. Nor is there any evidence, whatever, that Union Seminary might conceivably return to orthodoxy. At this present writing, the institution, which at one time was the most highly endowed seminary in the world, is in a precarious condition. Since the retirement of John Bennett as president, it has floundered, and its last president was dismissed from the institution with a generous financial settlement. Its student body has declined, and it has cut back its program. Through the years, Union Seminary has had a profound influence on the churches. Of that, there can be no doubt. But so far as one of Briggs' observations is concerned, it has failed miserably. It was Briggs who lamented that the masses in the great cities have not been evangelized. At least Briggs professed to believe in evangelization. Union no longer believes this, nor has the institution done anything of a significant nature through the years to evangelize New York City, where it is located. It has no gospel that faintly resembles the gospel revealed in the New Testament, and its orientation has been more and more leftward. But it has influenced generations of students in its graduate school, and many of them are firmly entrenched in colleges and seminaries around the world. Tillich, Niebuhr, and Bennett left behind them multitudes who embraced their viewpoints and now propagate them to others. It was Harry Emerson Fosdick, whom I have already quoted as disbelieving almost every fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith, who taught a generation of prospective clergymen how to preach at Union. William Sloan Coffin, Jr., of Yale University fame, who was prominent in the disorders that struck that canvas in the 60s, attended Union. Robert McAfee Brown of Stanford University, whose radical views are so widely known they need no documentation, is a graduate and former faculty member of Union. John Tietjen, the former president of Concordia Seminary at St. Louis, who is at the center of the struggle in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod over Scripture, is a graduate of Union with a doctorate. The question can be asked, Does a poisoned well bring forth sweet water? The Briggs case teaches us still another lesson. In almost every case, unorthodoxy has its beginnings in the theological seminaries. They are the fountainhead of the churches. 
As the seminaries go, so go the churches. Almost inevitably, graduates of a theological institution reflect the viewpoints of their teachers. More than that, they usually go beyond their teachers and carry their aberrant viewpoints to the farthest extreme. Once the theological seminaries go liberal, it does not take long for the denominations they represent to follow them. In the Presbyterian Church, of which Dr. Briggs was a member, now the United Presbyterian Church, there is not a single theological seminary in the denomination today that is committed in principle and practice to historic orthodoxy. There are a few members of the faculties of these institutions who are truly evangelical, but their number is small and their ultimate influence minuscule. Before his death several years ago, J. Howard Pugh, a staunch Presbyterian, sought to create a new United Presbyterian Theological Seminary that would operate within the framework of the denomination and stand forthrightly for the teachings of the Westminster Confession of Faith. He was willing to give millions of dollars for the effort, but the denomination politely refused permission. For years, Princeton Theological Seminary was the center of theological orthodoxy in the Presbyterian Church. Among its giants were men like Green, Hodge, and Warfield. They are gone, and the institution that once stood for historic evangelical Christianity is an inclusivistic school that has room for a variety of viewpoints that contradict each other. It has no integrated theology that can stand up in the face of the law of internal contradiction. The Union Seminary illustration teaches us also that deviations from doctrinal commitments occur, but they are muted and do not come to the surface until someone or something brings them to the fore and requires a decision. Obviously, Union was infected with aberrant views before Briggs joined the faculty. Moreover, the majority of the faculty and the board of the institution were already committed to a liberal theology before the Briggs case came to the forefront. Briggs was a catalyst who made apparent what was partially hidden. He brought the deviation out into the open for all to see. Moreover, Union has a lesson to teach about the ethics of liberal theology. Briggs himself was devious. The board of the seminary was devious. Honesty and integrity were in short supply. Both Briggs and the board knew that Briggs was teaching contrary to the Westminster Confession of Faith. The board was fully aware that the institution's relationship to the Presbyterian Church committed the seminary to the standards of the Westminster Confession. No one can fault the person who wishes to believe as he chooses. Freedom of religion includes the freedom to be an atheist, an agnostic or a theist. But ethics require that when a man no longer believes what he has sworn he believes, he must make that change of belief clear. He has two courses open to him. Either the institution or the church can then change its commitment to those doctrines he no longer believes, or he can demit the institution or the church. But for anyone to remain mute and to stay in a school or denomination when he disbelieves the standards the institution or church teaches is unethical. Yet both Briggs and Union Seminary were ethically and morally delinquent in this affair. And any church or school that has a commitment to a confession of faith but does not live up to it is hypocritical. 
What is stranger still is the mentality that passes adverse judgment upon fidelity to a doctrinal commitment. The literature of Briggs' controversy is full of loaded words that display contempt, if not hatred, for those who sought to remain faithful to the Westminster Confession of Faith. They were called traditionalists, as though that was something evil. They were reactionaries, a term that in anyone's book is slander. They were diehards, which suggests they were anti-intellectual and hidebound. The trial of Briggs by the New York Presbytery was termed an anachronistic inquest. Briggs' victory at Union and the later conquest of the Presbyterian Church by the liberals did not mean the end of evangelical faith. It was to survive this onslaught. Optimistic liberalism was dealt a death blow by 1930. Neo-Orthodoxy rose in its place. But by the 1940s, evangelicalism, which rose out of the earlier fundamentalism, experienced a resurgence of vitality. In 1947, Fuller Theological Seminary came into being. It was created for the express purpose of developing an apologetic for biblical inerrancy. Along with it came other tides of a literate scholarly mentality comparable to that of the old Princeton school of Hodge, Warfield, Green, and Mason. It is among this new group of evangelicals that an incursion of disbelief in inerrancy has come just as in Briggs' day. And for them, the history of Union Seminary and the Briggs trial has special reference. All they are doing is repeating history, and they can be sure that they will repeat what happened at Union subsequent to Briggs' day. Those who do not learn from history are bound to repeat its mistakes. Page 200, Chapter 11, The Conclusion of the Matter A journey of a thousand miles must come to an end. Even the rainwater returns to the ocean from which it came. So the hour has come to draw some conclusions and let the reader make his own decision. I have presented an apologetic for biblical inerrancy. It is based on a legitimate concern. Simply stated, the concern is that evangelical Christianity is engaged in the greatest battle of its history. The central issue at stake in this battle is epistemological. It has to do with the basis of our religious knowledge. Does that knowledge come from reason, the church, or from the Bible? The issue defined. Ten years ago, John Warwick Montgomery, in an article dealing with inerrancy, alluded to a statement made by James Orr in his book, The Progress of Dogma. In that book, Orr said that in each great epoch of church history, the Christian church has been forced to grapple with one facet of the Christian faith that has had a real bearing on the future direction of the church. In the early church, the key issue had to do with the persons of the Godhead, and particularly the Christological problem involving the deity and the humanity of Jesus. The ecumenical creeds of Christendom expressed the orthodox, Trinitarian views that prevailed as a result of that battle. Medieval Christianity dealt with the atonement of Jesus Christ. Anselm's Latin doctrine, which may have had some weaknesses, gave solid expression to biblical salvation history as represented by the epistle to the Hebrews. In the Reformation era, justification by faith alone established the biblical teaching against an anthropocentric trend that nullified genuine Christianity. 
In bygone ages, the Christological crisis, the Soteriological crisis, and the Reformation crisis arose, were faced, and solved. Today, the great watershed is the issue of Scripture. This struggle over Scripture is unique in the history of the Church. How the issue is settled remains to be seen. But if it is finally settled that Scripture can err, then the Church and its theologians will learn that no source and no standard remains to solve further doctrinal problems that may arise. Years ago, Charles Haddon Spurgeon understood the seriousness of the issue when he wrote, Believers in Christ's atonement are now in declared union with those who make light of it. Believers in Holy Scripture are in confederacy with those who deny plenary inspiration. Those who hold evangelical doctrine are in open alliance with those who call the fall a fable, who deny the personality of the Holy Ghost, who call justification by faith immoral, and hold there is another probation after death. To be very plain, we are unable to call these things Christian unions. They begin to look like confederacies in evil. End of quote. So Clark Pinnock quoted Spurgeon as he went on to observe that James Faulkner rightly said, Excessive aversion to controversy may be an indication that a church has no keen sense of possessing truth, which is of any great worth, and that it has lost appreciation for the infinite difference in value between truth and error. Pinnock, in his appeal to the Southern Baptists, then quotes Martin Luther, if I profess with loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all battlefields, besides, is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. End of quote. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.